when I was thinking about how to start the show, I, I was looking at what happened with Capital One. Mm-hmm. And my main question was, is there any way in this day and age that my personal information has not been hacked? Oh, no, absolutely not. Unless you live completely off the grid with no credit and, you know, cash only, and there's no way. Josephine Wolf is a professor of cybersecurity at Tufts University. She is really matter-of-fact about data breaches, like the one that happened to Capital One last week. She says, by the time you hear this story, you'll already be in the process of forgetting that 100 million customers have had their information stolen. So right now, people are reading about Capital One and interested in what happened and who did it and all of the circumstances. And then all of us move on. And understandably, there are other things going on. And one of the things that really interests me is sort of what the the long, drawn-out legal and economic aftermath of these incidents looks like. From her perspective, what made last week really interesting is that there were two of these stories going on at the same time. All right, what's in your wallet? In one of the biggest data breaches ever, a hacker gained access to more than 100 million Capital One customer accounts and credit card applications. With Capital One, we were just learning all the tangled details about that hacker from Seattle who bragged about stealing data in chat rooms and on social media. 33-year-old Paige Thompson is accused of breaking into a Capital One server and gaining access to, specifically... 140,000 social security numbers, a million Canadian social insurance numbers, 80,000 bank account numbers. And then, at the same time... This week, more Americans discovering for the first time if they were hacked in the massive Equifax data breach. Equifax, the credit monitoring company, finally resolved a breach that they had announced back in 2017. In a massive settlement with the government, the company offered 147 million Americans compensation for their stolen data. 125 bucks a person. Sort of. Adding insult to injury, the payments may not really be $125 in the end. Deep down in the settlement document, the FTC says only $31 million will be set aside for individual cash payments. That means if there is more than $31 million in claims, payments for such valid claims will be reduced. And one of the things I think is sort of interesting about the Equifax story is it's getting another news cycle or maybe even another two or three news cycles because of all of the changes that have been announced now, a year later, when the terms of the settlement are actually coming out, which I think is hopeful because it suggests people are sort of capable of being interested and engaged in following up on these kinds of incidents, even after several others have occurred and they've, you know, had to move on to other things. Today on the show, what this Equifax hack tells us about Capital One. And if Josephine's right and your data's already out there, is there anything you can do about it? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. 
See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So let's talk about the particulars of this incident. Sure. What happened here? So there's a former Amazon employee named Paige Thompson who has been charged with stealing the 100 million people's credit applications to Capital One. And the information that's sort of used to link her to this breach has to do with her actually posting the stolen data to her GitHub page, which had her full name and her resume on it. And that happened in April. And we don't know yet whether anybody downloaded the data. It was, it was all out there on her website. Um, we have no idea if anybody saw it or used it. And then Capital One discovered the breach on July 19th. So you said with hacks like this one, we have to realize a couple of things. First, that a bank like Capital One is just incredibly vulnerable because they're guarding a vast repository of information. And one tiny crack in the facade could just prove fatal for them. But also that there's something else, which is that hackers have to find a way to convert it into currency. Can you explain that a little bit? Part of the thing that interests me about the aftermath of cybersecurity incidents is the question of what are the perpetrators going to do with the data they steal after they've stolen it? Because in some sense, stealing the data is the easy part. And if you then want to make millions of dollars, which many cyber criminals do, you have to find a way to sell it all on the black market without being caught. And those are often the stages, the sort of monetization stages, where people do run into problems with getting caught by law enforcement or other kinds of investigations. And one of the things that we haven't seen yet with the Capital One breach is why was Thompson doing this, right? Was this just sort of recreational hacking, which might be supported by some of the, the boastful messages? Was this actually a desire to get rich quick? And if so, it seems like she never actually got around to the stage of selling the information. And because of that, it's a little hard to say what it is she was after. Was this hobbyist? Was this financial gain? Was this trying to stick it to a former employer? Um, we just we haven't seen sort of the later stages of a breach that would usually give us that information. Is the kind of data breach we saw from Capital One, is it sort of just the new reality? Huh. I think the, the breach from Capital One is standard in some ways because it targets traditionally criminally targeted information in people's credit applications. I think it's not the new normal in that it seems to have been perpetrated by somebody who was actually based in the United States. And that's not actually something that we see a lot, especially with breaches of this size. Usually when you have a breach of the scale, something like Equifax, which was 147 million people, you're looking at organized cybercrime operations, which are usually based overseas in Russia and Eastern Europe, and are usually not being bragged about publicly in the way that the Capital One breach was or being done in such a way that it's really even possible for U.S. law enforcement to arrest the person involved. Because we're talking about really two data breaches at the same time, what happened with Equifax and what happened with Capital One, can you just remind us what did happen with Equifax? Yeah, so I think there are a couple things that really stood out about Equifax. The first was just the size, 147 million people in the United States affected. That's enormous. The second was the kind of information involved, right? It was people's full credit histories in some cases, or as far as we understand what was stolen. So that could be social security numbers, could be addresses, could be credit card numbers. All of those things really 
gave criminals access to any information about you they could possibly need to know in order to steal your identity. And I think the other thing that really struck a lot of people at the time was that this was not a company any of us had chosen to give our data to. Right. So sometimes there are these arguments that are like, you know, if you're angry with Target or Home Depot or whoever for having a breach, then don't shop there. You don't have to decide to give them your information or your credit card number. But Equifax is a credit bureau. So it has information about all of us, regardless of whether we've decided it's, you know, a company that we want to patronize. And I think a lot of people felt that was a really clear failing of the system where none of us could vote with our feet in the way that we're sometimes told to do. They just automatically had everybody's data. So compare what happened in terms of consequences for Equifax to what we might see with Capital One. Um, I think you're likely to see something pretty similar with Capital One. That is, I would guess they're going to agree to a settlement. I would guess that the settlement is going to involve paying for credit monitoring for the 100 million people who were affected. I would also guess, by the way, that since there are very few companies in the country who can provide credit monitoring for that many people, that either Experian or Equifax will end up getting that contract to provide credit monitoring because they are the two largest credit bureaus and they're able to provide that service at that scale. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, hearing you describe this where, you know, there's probably going to be credit monitoring, it's probably going to go to Equifax. Equifax had this huge data breach. It feels like a bunch of big companies like passing each other money. (laughs) Yep. No, I think that's absolutely correct, right? The big winner in the Equifax story is going to turn out to be Experian. And then the rest of us are just sitting here like, okay, I guess my data was stolen. Yeah. As more and more people learned that Equifax was offering this cash settlement, millions logged on to try to get reimbursed. And last week, the Federal Trade Commission made an announcement. Those $125 cash payments, they weren't going to happen. There just isn't enough money. The government urged victims to sign up for credit monitoring instead. I mean, Experian will tell you that the credit monitoring service they're offering is worth $1,200. I think that's that's a very questionable claim, especially because Equifax is paying something like $16 per person for it. But the whole question of sort of whether consumers are getting anything out of this is pretty open, especially now that the $125 payments are being rolled back. Does this ever make you mad? All the time. All the time. It makes me mad. Um, it makes me mad at Congress for not putting in place better data security legislation in this country. It makes me mad at the companies for not being able to do a more serious job, either of protecting this data or of trying to make it up to people in the aftermath of what they've done. It leaves me frustrated with the groups of industry and government agencies that are putting out security recommendations to companies that don't provide clear or effective guidance on how to protect this data. Makes me makes me mad at a lot of people, I guess, but I think there are also a lot of systemic problems that are broader than just sort of why wasn't there more money that Equifax had to pay here. One of those systemic problems has to do with our own laws. There's a reason why it can take months or even years for a breach to be reported. There's no federal law in the United States about reporting breaches of personal information. On the other hand, almost every state at this point now does have a state data breach notification law. And uh, one of the reasons why there hasn't been a move to implement a federal law in this country has been partly because a lot of people feel the state ones are 
doing a better job than a federal one might. So we don't necessarily have a unified framework. We do now think, because of how widely implemented the state laws are, that most breaches of personal information about customers or clients are being reported. That leaves a whole a whole wide set of other types of incidents that aren't necessarily being reported. Like what? Um, so things like ransomware or theft of intellectual property or proprietary secrets or denial of service attacks, all of that kind of stuff wouldn't fall into the category of stolen personal information. You've written that Europe has just put in place new regulation to try to curb cyber attacks. It is this kind of federal regulation model to sort of see if this changes things. I wonder what we've seen in the first year of implementation there that might give us any hints of of what could happen if the U.S. did something at a national level. Right. So Europe implemented the General Data Protection Regulation last year in May 2018. And what we've seen in sort of the first years is that the incidents being reported have shot way up. So in the UK alone, there's more than doubled, I believe, the number of security incidents that have been reported to the UK authorities and other European countries. They're seeing similar spikes. And they've also put a very strict timeline of it, of 72 hours within discovery of the incident, it needs to be reported, which is much more stringent than anything we have in the United States. I would say the other half of that is that a big part of what the GDPR was supposed to do was impose much higher financial penalties. Yeah, you highlighted that I think the European Union has taken in 55 million euros in terms of fines, but I think 50 million of that is just Google. Right. You know, on the one hand, that might sound like a lot of money, Uh, 55 million euros in fines for security lapses over the course of a year. But on the other hand, if you look at something like the Equifax settlement, which started with a $380.5 million consumer fund, it's actually not the case that the European fines are far outpacing the U.S. ones or dealing with this necessarily in a much stronger way. Are some companies just choosing to accept the fines, just saying, well, we can't protect the data that well, so I guess we'll just take a fine? Well, that's what happens with most companies, I would say, both in the U.S. and in Europe, right? The the Equifax settlement, for instance, is Equifax agreeing to this and deciding that they would rather sort of reach the settlement than fight in court with the FTC and all of the class action plaintiffs. So, yes, that's very common that companies will agree to a fine and then get on with their business. For businesses, the increase in attacks like these presents a choice about how to defend against them. Some are increasing their use of two-factor authentication. Some are encrypting. Some are just completely outsourcing their cybersecurity. And when all else fails, there's always insurance. One of the things we don't know yet, for instance, is how much of the Equifax settlement is going to end up being covered by their insurance policies in this space. Does that feel like passing the buck to you or just like what they have to do? So I think it's a little bit of both, right? I'm, I, I understand the desire to purchase insurance for business risks. That's what they do for all sorts of other risks. I think the problem we have here is that the insurance companies don't know yet what the appropriate requirements are to put in place for these companies. So for instance, if you buy fire insurance, they know to say to you, look, you have to have smoke detectors or sprinklers or whatever else. And so we can be sure that 
you're doing your due diligence, but you also have some protection if something goes really wrong. And the, the trouble with cyber insurance is we just don't know what the equivalent of those smoke detectors and sprinklers are here. And so companies are buying these cyber insurance policies and the insurers don't have any way to say to them, look, these are the 10 things you need to do to make sure that you're protecting your data before we agree to cover you. Hmm. You know, I feel like you see everyone's perspective here. You know, you see that the trouble the banks have controlling access to their information and, and how impossible that job seems. You see even how hard it is for hackers to sell this information. But I wonder if you could do something to change the way this all works right now, what would it be? If I could do something to change how the aftermath of cybersecurity incidents works, it would be to put in place a federal law that was not focused on breach notification, but instead focused on what kinds of penalties the Federal Trade Commission can charge to companies that experience these major breaches. Because one of the things that the FTC and the lawyers who negotiated the Equifax settlement kept coming up against, and they're going to come up against it again with Capital One, is that they're really only allowed to fine these companies for the direct consumer losses in these cases. And that's why there is so much money allocated for credit monitoring and so little money allocated for direct consumer payouts, because that's not viewed as compensating direct consumer losses. And I think because we already have way too much credit monitoring and it's not doing any of us any good, we need to rethink whether that's really the way that we're going to punish companies in the aftermath of these breaches and whether that's the thing that's benefiting consumers most. Hmm. So I'm a consumer. You are too. You started this interview by saying there's no way your information has not been hacked. So what do I do? Like, what is the thing I can do to protect myself, to protect like my kids credit? I just I feel like I don't know. The most important thing that you can do at this point is to freeze your credit file with Equifax and Experian and TransUnion. You can do that for free online at each bureau's website. And that basically means that if anybody tries to steal your identity, if anybody tries to open a credit card in your name or take out a loan in your name, they won't be able to because they won't be able to put in the inquiry for your credit file. So that's the most effective thing, better than any kind of credit monitoring, because what credit monitoring will tell you is just, you know, somebody applied for this in your name or this this account was opened in your name. And really what you want to do is cut that off before it happens, which is what the freeze does. Josephine Wolf, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Josephine Wolf is a professor of cybersecurity at Tufts University and the author of You'll See This Message When It's Too Late the legal and economic aftermath of cybersecurity breaches. All right, that's the show. This episode was produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks, with special help from Katya Kumkova. I'm Mary Harris. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow. 